All right, HCC, how are you? I think three of us are well, that's so good to hear. I'm so glad to be with you. Here we are this first weekend of August, kind of kicking off a brand new series. For some, it is still great, hot summer weather. For others, oh man, that S word, not the one you're thinking of, the other one, school, is starting back. And uh, so all kinds of different transitions going on in our lives right now. I'm really glad to get to be here with you to kick off this brand new series. It really was bridged really in a really great way last weekend as Jackson was closing our series on the book of Proverbs and talking about among all these things that a dad is telling his son, hey, here's how you walk in the way of wisdom one of those huge topics in the book of Proverbs is how you navigate sexuality, specifically sexual temptation. And so we kind of use that as that last piece in the Proverbs series to kind of bridge in to a series over the next five weeks talking about all kinds of issues related to sexuality. If you have your Bible, we're actually gonna start at the very beginning where we ought to, page one. Find your way to Genesis one, and we'll be there in a moment. If you have your notes, be ready to go. And, and really the reason why this series is so important is because there are so many loud voices shouting at you about what sexuality is and how much sexuality matters. Matters. Our culture screams these things. You could drop an alien into our country and just have them be here for a few days and take in the reality this is an over-sexualized group of people. We put this in front of ourselves all the time. So what matters to me is that more than the loud screaming voices, the problem is, is that Jesus' church is often quiet if not altogether silent on this subject, of which God is the actual perfect creator. And so that's why this is so important that we dive in to understand God's creation for what God has made. And we're, I'm excited to begin with you as we dial in. I love, I appreciate our comm team for all the things they do, but especially this series, we were having a creative meeting a few months ago, and as we were talking about it, I just love what they came up with, this idea that you pay good, or at least let's put it this way, if you don't pay good attention to the labels in your clothing, you'll only do that until you destroy something, right? You accidentally wash it, you accidentally don't you know, wash it with colds or whatever, and all of a sudden it's ruined, and then you realize that tag is there for a reason. I'm gonna pay better attention. I'm going to handle with care. And so I love this whole um, ethos, this, this whole symbolism that we're using related to what God's design for our sexuality, that we would in the same way pay good attention and handle with great care. This idea, by the way, one of the words that are phrases we'll use throughout this series is that because God is the designer of sexuality, then we need to understand that he created what we'll call a holy sexuality. And what we mean by that is that it's from God, of God, given to us by God, and therefore there is this thing. And, and for some of us, as we dive into this topic, for a host of reasons, it's not only awkward, let's just say that in the beginning. Every time I say the word sex tonight, some of you are gonna cringe a little bit, that's okay. There's an awkwardness to the conversation. But beyond the awkwardness, for some of us, there is this gross concept. One of the marriage books I remember reading years ago talked about sexuality that often will have one of three opinions of it. It's either gross 
or it's a God, we've made it an idol in our lives, or hopefully biblically it's good within God's design of how he designed it. So <clears throat> I'm excited to dive in with you. Let me start by telling you this. I think understanding from the very beginning the why, the what, and the who of this series will help a lot. <clears throat> so let me begin with the why. Why are we even doing a series on sexuality? And it really comes down to this. It's what I said a minute ago, because everyone else is talking about it. How could we be silent? The people who have God's revelation of truth on the subject matter, we need to be very upfront, open, and very true to what God has said. So we have much to say on it simply because we have a Bible and in God's revelation, he speaks much to it. I, I felt like in this series, having at least a basic foundation and understanding that we could begin from would be a real win going long-term so that as we understand the real thing of what God's created, we would be able to compare it to the counterfeits that we experience around us and honestly, maybe even in us. I'm not gonna be a fool to think that we're all at this understanding and definitely not all at the practice of engaging God's gift of sexuality his way. So we're going to come at it with a sense of, God, we wanna have an openness to hear what you have to say. That's been my prayer all week for us, that there would be open ears and hearts to as we hear God's word, what does this mean in my life? And I wanna help, our goal at HUC all the time is to help equip you to be a better world changer, to help equip you to be a person of loving influence in your oikos, your eight to 15. And we believe this topic is gonna to help that way. Also, I wanna be really clear, this topic is not in reaction to anything. We put this together on the teaching calendar 10 months ago. So there's no recent event, <clears throat> there's no cultural thing that we're like, oh, we need to do a series about sexuality. We just think it's important no matter what. If that's the why, then what's the what? What are we gonna do? And our goal is this, we're not going to be exhaustive. <clears throat> I'll tell you that in advance because what that's gonna do, there's probably gonna be an element every single week in this series where you're gonna be frustrated that we didn't talk about subject X or Y. And it's gonna be uh, one of those, well, he didn't get more into or he didn't address that. I'm just gonna tell you in advance, be ready to be disappointed. Because what we are going to do is we're gonna focus on the foundational truths of sexuality presented in scripture and that's all we'll have time for in this five week series. We will do other things in the future, but in this first series it's gonna be, here's the foundational issues that we believe the Bible teaches. So therefore, as we continue to try to understand what the counterfeits are, we have to become very, very aware of what the real thing is. And finally, who? Who is this series intended for? And can I say with great confidence, it is intended for every single one of us. Those of you here in Powell Auditorium, those of you watching online, it is for every single one of us, both those who may have not stepped into spaces that have violated God's design for their sexuality with the goal of encouraging you to continue on. And for others who have failed in multiple, even just one area of God's design for sexuality, this series is going to be redemptive every single week. So I want you to understand that in advance. If you were like, man, I'm just gonna feel shame over the next five weeks, I'm gonna tell you now, shooting it over the bow, I guarantee you won't. Not a shame that leaves you paralyzed, not a shame that leaves you hopeless, but the reality of redemption in every single week. That's what we're after. We understand, <clears throat> I'm gonna say this from the beginning too, that to label anyone's sexual expression, sexual desire, sexual attraction 
as right or wrong in our culture is reprehensible. I totally understand that. And that's why it's not gonna be my job to say what is right and what is wrong, but it will be God's job as we look at his word and try to understand what has he revealed to us. And so as we do that, what I understand, even though we live in a culture that says, feel what you feel, love who or what you wanna love and be who you believe yourself to be, we have to be a people who keep walking in truthfulness. It's one of our, it's our highest core value at High Desert Church that we would be a truthful people. So therefore we're not gonna dodge this subject because it's uncomfortable or because even there's a lot of challenge in our culture towards it. But this is what we are gonna do. We're also not gonna drop what I just call Bible bombs and walk away, but we're gonna speak the truth in love. And as we do from Ephesians 4, we're gonna keep growing up into him who is the head, Jesus himself. That's our goal and that's gonna be our approach. So today we'll look at the very beginning where we need to start. How does God define what is a man and what is a woman? That's where every issue emanates from that reality. And we're gonna begin, like we said at the beginning in Genesis one. Take a look at your notes. Number one, manhood and womanhood were part of God's intentional, and I'm sorry, initial and intentional created design. The idea of manhood and womanhood were part of God's initial and intentional created design. For Bibles are open, Genesis chapter one, verse 26 says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the air and the sky, over the livestock and all of the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So we're beginning in the right place. Literally the first chapter, just a few verses in to all of our scriptures, Genesis 1 is where we're beginning because it's where God begins. His creative design for our world, including the specificity of not just that he created human beings, but he created them male and female. So this is from the very beginning where we need to establish just a baseline of truth. And true to form, if we get this wrong, so many other errors are going to come out of this. I always think of it because Todd is not a good math student. But when I was in math, you know, I say, even when I say the word math, like Todd, I think you mean geometry or algebra, I just say math. When I was in a math class, when I would get the beginning of an equation wrong, everything after that is wrong as well. And that's why getting these numbers right at the beginning, getting the, the foundation right at the beginning matters as we move forward. These first three verses that I read and that you read in your Bibles are important. And by the way, we're gonna move interestingly through Genesis, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 today. And so have your Bible ready and we'll just kind of, I'll note some verses as we go. But as we read that, we're actually gonna make those observations from the first three chapters. I'm gonna give kind of a verse indicator and you can make note of it and I'll kind of give a summary point because here's my goal. I wanna give some big rocks at the beginning of our time today and then we'll see how that fleshes out and why they matter so much. So first off, we noted in verse 27 and 26, God is a creator of all things, including mankind. Human beings are unique. From all of the created order, verse 27 told us, because they're made in the image of God. 
That's a powerful reality. There's nothing else of the created order that gets that descriptor. But human beings are made in the image of God. And I want you to note this in your notes. Of all the created order, it is only humans that are noted to be created male and female even though the other created species have male and female counterparts. That might just be so like, and, and as we walk through today, we're looking at a descriptive passage, meaning Moses, we believe, was penning these words hundreds of years later and is writing about what God did, his description. But we're gonna see huge principles that come from his descriptive, the descriptive reality and how they affect us today. So as we know, of all the created animals that came prior to this in the first part of creation, they're just said, and these were created. And we know that there were male and female versions of each of them because that's how they were going to be fruitful and multiply. But it is for humanity that God creates them, not just in his image, but male and female. And, and God goes out of his way to communicate that reality to us that he's never said a word in the other parts of the created order, but he says it here. We note as well that God blessed them both, uh, both of them, not one or the other, and gave them really two basic charges that we just read in Genesis 1, that they would be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, and secondly, that they would rule over every living creature. That's the mandate given to the man and the woman, that they would be fruitful and multiply which takes two, by the way, and that they would also rule and subdue the earth. They would have a role of leadership over the rest of the created order. Not only blessing, but given directives. And that's really where we finish off. We finish off actually chapter one. God said that it was very good when he looked over all of his created order. Chapter two, if you have a Bible, just flip to that next chapter. This is what, what chapter two is, is what God does in the first chapter of Genesis of all the creation account. Chapter two talks more about this sixth day, more about this reality of what it was like when he created man and woman. And on this, here's a few ideas from verse seven of chapter two. Man was created first out of the dust with God-breathed life. The Bible tells us that God breathed into the dust and there formed from that the man. <clears throat> no, God does not say that he created the man and the woman this way. As we walk through, we're gonna know a very significant difference, not only in the ordering, but in the substance. So we begin with God breathed into this dust and as a result, man was created. Note next, God placed the man in the garden and charged him to work it. Watch this. As of this point, if you're reading this chapter two chronologically, as of yet, and I'm making a big point because it's gonna matter in a minute, woman is not yet formed. So note that there is one human being in existence in this moment. God has breathed into the dust, formed the man, and then as a result, he charges him to work the garden and tend it. That is a directive given to Adam. God commanded that the man, and note again, the woman has not been created yet, that he would enjoy all the fruit of the garden except for the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and tells him that if you eat of it, in that day you will surely die. I want you to catch a powerful thing. God gave, this is what we have recorded, God gave that instruction to the man. The woman has not yet been created. This is important as we'll see in just a second. God said that it wasn't good for the man to be alone. 
He brings all of the created order in front of Adam and has him name the different animals. And I think you, you kind of wonder about that. Number one, well, that's a lot of animals. Number two, why would God do that? Why wouldn't God just say, Adam, this is what to call this and this is what that is? And I think honestly, the biggest part of the reason for that was to have all of creation, the created beings march in front of Adam and for Adam to understand very demonstrably, there's no one like me. Everyone else has an other. Everyone else has a mate. I am alone. So not only did God say it's not good for the man to be alone, at some point, I believe Adam recognized it's not good for me to be alone. There's no one else like me. No one that fits with me. No one that complements the things about that are true of me that would be true of them. Verses 19 and 20 say that there was no suitable helper for him. Now, can we just say this? In our English language, whenever you hear the word helper, it often relates to a diminutive term, right? You'll see moms with two-year-olds, hey, do you wanna be mommy's little helper today? And that's a great thing to say to a two-year-old. It sounds demeaning to say to a woman, an adult, and so when we hear this word, God, there was no suitable helper for him. In our English vernacular, we quickly go to, he's what matters, he just needs an assistant. But I want you to understand, not only is that not true, but on top of it, this original Hebrew word in which the Old Testament was written is the word hezer. Hezer, and alone, just as one example, 11 times this word is found in the book of Psalms related to God. God is there, or God is an individual's hazer. And in it, what it shows time and time again, he is the one coming to the rescue. He is the one supporting. He is the one defending people. He is an ally and presents strength to the one in need. There is no diminutive junior concept, even though our English translation, our English word may radiate that. The reality is there is a valued person that was needed for this relationship for man to no longer be alone. So what does God do? He creates woman, but note, he doesn't create her from the dust. He literally takes out a piece of Adam. This is a wild thing to think about. He takes a rib of Adam and around that flesh forms a woman who is that other person, who is that other side of who he is. And what's powerful to me, even when Adam says, whoa, God, I could tell in all the created order there was no one like me. Now you have given me someone who is like me. And what does he say? You will be called woman because you have come from the man. The even substance of who she was, was connected to who he is. And I think that matters a lot later in Genesis two, we'll spend more time with this next week. The substance of this marriage relationship from the very beginning is called a one flesh relationship. And the two shall become one flesh. It's almost as though this concept of what was gonna happen in marriage, what God took away from the man to create the woman, he would bring back together and the two would become one. This disconnection would now be connected. It's a powerful image, beautiful to consider in the reality of God's design for marriage. So note 
that in this reality of being created second, in this reality of being created from the man, in this reality of being created to complement, to be for the man, the reality of none of that makes a woman any less valuable, any less meaningful, any less worthy. There's nothing in the text that would suggest that. Just two weeks ago, the Barbie movie is the biggest movie of this entire year, box office wise. And as that movie opened up, there are so many different things to consider and think about from the philosophies that are shared. I don't have time for it, but I wanted to alert you to one thing that I thought was of interest. And it really wasn't from the movie. The movie's co-writer and director, Greta Gerwig, she was in an, an interview that I read. And in the interview, she made an interesting point. She noted that Barbie in the Barbie sequence was created first and Ken was made later as an accessory to her. And she noted it's just the opposite of what she called the creation myth. And when I heard that, I realized, well, she's actually right in the sense that Barbie coming before Ken is the opposite of the woman, or the man coming before the woman in Genesis 2. But that's kind of the end of where the truth in that statement is. The first thing you need to know is that we don't believe that the Genesis account is a myth. We don't believe that it's some story that's been made up to try to account for how the world began, especially in this case, including God's formation or creation of man and woman. And so we, don't, we think like all the rest of scripture, this is absolutely true, not only authentic, but also authoritative for our lives. But the other thing that I want you to note that I also believe that in Greta's analogy, she got it wrong is this. Look in your notes. Eve was not created as an accessory to Adam. She was not created as an accessory to Adam, but as an equally valued and meaningful individual who embodied unique strengths and an essential role that complemented, that provided the counterpart to the man's. I want you to make sure you hear that from the very beginning. The order of creation matters. It's gonna show up later on, especially in the New Testament related to this concept of headship. But as we look at this today, note, that though Adam came first and Eve came from him doesn't mean that Eve is somehow an appendage, that she's an accessory and all that really matters is the man. It's absolutely not true because in so many ways, even their directive, be fruitful and multiply, subdue and fill the earth, all these things come from that team, not just from one person. This hasn't been an exhaustive list, just a few big rocks as we begin in Genesis 1. But I wanted you at least to see that here's these descriptive realities of the essence of how man and woman were created at the beginning and they deeply matter. There was great intent on how God created them. Let's say this from the beginning too and we'll see this every week. God is God, we believe he could do whatever he wants. So there is no thing that's causing him to say, well, doggone it, I've got to create them this way, or I've got to create them in this order, or I have to create them in this manner. God is absolutely unhinged and unconnected to any restraints. Everything he does, he does as absolute, all omnipotent, powerful God. And his choice to create in such a way means it has great meaning for us. It wasn't a have to, it was a purposeful 
a statement that we're gonna refer to a few times in this series is called the Nashville Statement. It was a group of people that came together six years ago in 2017, of pastors, theologians, and authors to have a summit basically on the point of trying to identify what does God say about sexuality? That was the whole essence of their meeting. I wanna read you a clip from what they would just call the preamble, the, a paragraph from the beginning of the statement, because I believe it sums up this incredibly important concept so well. It says this, we are persuaded that faithfulness in our generation means declaring once again the true story of the world and of our place in it, particularly as male and female. Christian scripture teaches that there is but one God who alone is creator and Lord of all. To him alone, every person owes glad-hearted thanksgiving, heartfelt praise, and total allegiance. This is the path not only of glorifying God, but of knowing ourselves. To forget that he is creator is to forget who we are, for he made us for himself. And we cannot know ourselves truly without truly knowing him who made us. He did not make, we did not make ourselves, we are not our own. Our true identity as male and female persons is given by God. It is not only foolish, but hopeless to try to make ourselves what God did not create us to be. That statement is gonna be, that Nashville, the bigger statement is gonna be a great help to us in this series. But I wanna tell you this, I've been telling people, we have developed a resource list of all things under the umbrella of biblical sexuality. I would like you to do this. If you don't have your phone out already, would you get it out? Because I really think you're going to want this resource list and this is the easiest way to get it. Our text number that we use at HDC is 64567. The easiest way I remember that, the last part is 4567. Seven, so put a six in front of it. Six, four, five, six, seven. And, you're, and I love this. You're going to text the word laundry, right? With our series theme, text the word laundry to six, four, five, six, seven. When you do, what's going to come back is a link to our resource list. And I'm going to tell you now, I've been telling people, I think the resource list that we've generated for this series is going to have incredible value and worth for you. More than any resources I've noted before, this list is amazing. And here's one of the reasons why it's amazing. Our pastors have helped compile a bunch of great different books, podcasts, um, uh, articles on these topics. And on the one hand, it's extensive, but it's not meant to be overwhelming. It's even put in with subject headings so you can find your way. But this is what I love about it. Sometimes I've realized, and by the way, these are a few of the books that are in that group. There's probably about 30 that are listed. But here's what I've come to realize. I've even told you, when it comes to books, I've really become a fan of audiobooks because I'm just not a good reader. I mean, professionally I can read, but it just is hard for me to keep mowing through a book. So one thing that we've done is we've given you a way to become introduced to many of the different authors that are in that by listening to a 20 minute podcast, reading an article you can read in 15 minutes, just a way, because I don't know about you, but for me, I want to pursue knowing more from someone that I've heard or that I can connect to before I might buy a whole book. And so if that's you, if you're like, Todd, you've mentioned books before, I don't read, I don't, no, no, no. okay, 
but at least go to that list and listen to a podcast for 25 minutes. Go to that list and read an article and let that be at least a way to get to know that author. And then if you wanna know more, there's a book reference for most of those as well. There's some websites noted on there. It's just a really great comprehensive list. Now here's the thing I wanna say about those resources related to our topic today. They all begin where we've begun. They all begin with the foundational understanding of how God created man and woman in his image and he created them male and female. Number two in your notes, and we're gonna stay in the book of Genesis. Sin deeply affects all of humanity's personhood, including the dynamics of manhood and womanhood. Sin deeply affects all of humanity's personhood, including the dynamics of manhood and womanhood. We're in Genesis three now, the next chapter of where you're at. Verse six, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, I didn't start at verse one. I'm gonna go back and give you some big rocks. But these few verses identify what often we recognize as like this is what we call the fall. This is where Adam and Eve, given one directive, choose to do something different, and as a result, sin and death enter into the world. And this all begins early, early in our Bibles in Genesis 3. Um, we realize that when this happens, God's design in man and woman deteriorate from the very beginning. We're gonna walk through some big rocks to see. Here's the first. The first thing is that a serpent comes and tempts the woman. Now, what we don't know, and I'm gonna do a lot of this in this part of the story, there are things that are not recorded for us in Genesis 3. So for instance, we don't know if the woman ever had a conversation with a talking snake before. She seems relatively comfortable with it. I think you and I would freak out. I freak out seeing a snake in general, especially one that talks to me, okay? We don't know if they'd had a relationship before, but we know in this moment, that's exactly what happens. We also don't know why the snake came and talked to the woman and not the man. Because what we have recorded is the serpent is speaking to her. The woman replies when she's tempted to take this fruit, she replies with what God had communicated to the man and watch this, but added rules to it. Note two things we had said earlier, we don't have in our account. Now, what isn't included in Genesis two and three, I can't speak to, but in our account, God gave that directive to the man before the woman was ever created, told him to stay away from one tree in the garden, everything else enjoy, this don't eat. So was it the man's role to communicate that truth to the woman and did God never tell her but expected him to? Well, at some point she does know, she reiterates, but watch this, she added something. She said, and not even to touch it. From what we had listed earlier in Genesis two, God never said anything about touching it. He said, don't eat it. Was that added? Was that something that was left out? I'm not sure, it's just something I think is valuable to know. The woman acts upon the temptation and she eats the forbidden fruit. I want you to know this was an action rooted in deception and lies. She was tricked, she was deceived by the lies the serpent was giving her. That happens in what we read. But I want you to note this, that also the man 
was given the fruit from the woman and he ate it as well. And I want you to note that his action wasn't out of deception and lies. It was out of rebellion and setting aside leadership. Because we have no indication that the woman tried to tempt the man to eat what she'd already eaten. She just simply hands it to her. He has every prerogative to say no, but out of rebellion of what God had clearly told him and out of uh, laying down of his own leadership in the relationship, he takes the fruit and eats. And the Bible records that this, in this moment, when Adam ate of the fruit, that is when sin entered the world, Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. It's through Adam's rebellion of what we would call the fall or original sin begins in this action. So back to these distinctions of male and female, the distinctions of who was told what and when, they're not the same. And there's different types of responsibility, there's a different level of even rebellion versus simply being deceived. Note that both the man and woman's eyes were open and as a result, their nakedness, they needed to sew some clothes together to cover themselves. Note that when sin enters into the world, it not only breaks fellowship, breaks a connection with these co-created beings, man and woman, but we'll see, breaks the relationship with their creator. Sin affects everything and breaks everything in the process. The man responds to God's inquiry in verse 10, stating that he was afraid because he was naked, so he hid. And as a result, God asked him this great question, how did you know you were naked? Why would you have anything to be ashamed of? And as Adam begins to speak back the sequence of events, this is what he says, he blames the woman you put here with me who gave me some fruit and I ate it. Isn't it powerful in the first ever account of a sinful action, blame becomes the center point. It's not my fault, it's the woman you gave me. Note, by the way, it's exactly what happened. God had given her, him this amazing gift in this woman, the other side of him, the counterpart to who he is, and what was once so beautiful now is a subject to blame. It's her fault. God asked the woman, what happened? She does the exact same thing. She blames the serpent, he tricked me, and shifts the blame to another created being, even though she had full understanding of what God had said. This isn't all of the account of Genesis three in the fall, but I want you to know these things are really important to us related to our sexuality. And you might go, Todd, how? Well, they relate so much to the idea of what is a man and what is a woman. In your notes, here are some of the things that we face today that harken back to the original failure to follow God's design as men and women. In your notes, the first one, there is a competition that men and women often have with one another to establish who is more valuable or who is of more value and more worth, who is more capable and who is more self-sufficient. One thing that's come as a result of the fall, initially you had these two co-created beings that were on the same team, oaring in the same direction, working together, complementing each other beautifully. As a result of the fall, now there's a competition to say, in essence, I don't need you. I am better than you. I have greater value and worth. 
You guys, even to the point, and this is, this is something that you've heard as long as time, there will even be situations where we'll say, hey, this today is a battle of the sexes. And whether it be on a game show, whether it be in the public forum, this is the reality. There is now a competition where once there was incredible unity and perfect team. This is a problem from the fall. Number two in your notes. There are stereotypes and caricatures that men and women often use to describe each other, relegating all men or all women to certain attitudes and aptitudes, certain roles and responsibilities. This has become a problem. There is now this reality that we stereotype and in the stereotype usually make a caricature, which is that thing when you go to Disneyland and they wanna charge you 80 bucks to do a picture of yourself with a really big head, right? That nothing else looks proportionate. That's a caricature. We do this towards each other. A caricature from men is that he's gotta have a big bushy beard. He's gotta eat a lot of red meat. He's gotta love football. He's gotta drive a really big truck. He's got to be really abrasive. That's a man. And here's the interesting thing related to God's explanation and God's design for a man that doesn't come close. But yet that's what our culture has determined. That's what a man is. By the way, by that definition, I'm only two parts man. So I got an issue, I guess. But this is what happens as we buy into this, not just people in our world, but ourselves. This is what men are like. This is what women are like. Women, the same thing. There is this reality of a set of expectations, a way to look, a thing to do. What must be true of you because you are a woman, positively or negatively, that again is often formed from the caricature of a culture, sadly, even from our own church culture. Not High Desert Church specifically, but the church. Women are to look, to be, to whatever. And my only point is this, that may or may not be true, but it's all rooted back in what does God's word say? God's word gives us some level of directives for men and for women, some of which we're looking at today. But many of them, we've added to that mix and said, that's what makes a man a man. That's what makes a woman a woman. And finally, number three, as truth, and I think this is the hugest problem, as truth becomes more and more equal to what we used to call opinion or perspective, your truth can completely do away with anything that resembles the two types of intentionally sexed creatures that God created to demonstrate who he is. That term intentionally sexed mean, just goes back to what we said earlier today. He created the male and female. There were two and no more. And the problem is in our culture that's a much wider issue than simply this related to gender and sexuality is simply that truth has become simply something so subjective to whatever you feel, whatever you think, whatever your opinion may be, this is now quote your truth rather than simply truth. Truth that is objective. Truth that simply says, and for all time, in all places, for all people, this is true. The Bible communicates on that level of a thing we call objective truth rather than the subjective your truth about whatever situation you may be in or however you may feel. Our culture has lost its moorings about manhood and womanhood, plunging into such an individualized understanding of personhood that allow any and all deviations from God's design of male and female. Anything is up for grabs. 
One of the biggest fallacies occurred when gender became a separate category from sexuality. Track that again. One of the biggest fallacies occurred when gender became separated from sexuality. Look at this quote from an article from the uh, Gospel Coalition. While much of modern culture desires to deny these distinctions and to untether gender from sexuality, the New Testament reaffirms the Old Testament's teaching on this topic and brings the male-female distinction to its culmination in the Christ-Church relationship. According to the internet search that I did this past week, there are 107 stated gender identities today. So where you would normally, normally, when you would used to check a box, male or female, there could be 107 of those in our culture. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Tom even identified that people are now identifying, not even related to a different gender, but an altogether different species. So when you talk about losing our moorings, when you talk about losing a foundation that is rooted back in a creation design of male and female, we are there and we are living it. As I said at the beginning of this message, my goal today in this series is simply to make you well informed of God's perfect design, of getting to know the real things so you can spot counterfeits. Finally today, number three, sexuality confusion requires clarity and sexuality rebellion requires repentance. Let me explain what I mean by that. Sexuality confusion requires clarity and sexuality rebellion requires repentance. Mark 9, 31 says this, and he being Jesus said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he'll rise again. Pay attention to verse 32. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. First John 1, 9, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. These are two interesting passages that don't look like they have anything to do with our topic. Like, why are we talking about those we've been talking about sexuality, male and female, manhood, womanhood? Why are we there? Well, the first is this. The first part is Jesus sharing something with his disciples that was completely mind-bending to them. But I wanted you to note verse 32. They had confusion. They didn't know what to do, but were afraid to ask. And I find so many times in my interactions with people, as we're talking about issues that they're working through in their lives, it, it is this idea of either assuming they already know the biblical answer and saying, I don't wanna even know it, or being truly confused, but not running to God, instead running away. And the reality is, is that when we have confusion about anything in our lives, including our own sexual identity, these are things that we can bring to God and are encouraged to do so. In your notes, confusion isn't sinful, but it's what we do with our confusion that will either draw us closer to Jesus and truth or further from him towards lies. And I just want to say to you, and I had a great conversation with some of our youth ministry leaders here at HDC, and, and we talked about this incredible growth of confusion related to sexuality. And I want you to hear clearly from me when there's confusion on this topic for you or someone that you love, someone you're connected to in your oikos, let's do something and go to God's word 
and ask good questions and try to find out what does this mean for me? What am I to do with this? Rather than just either staying in a point and just kind of saying I'm confused and don't care or I anticipate what the Bible's gonna say, I don't like it and I'm just gonna stay in this world of confusion. And that leads me to the second part. I don't think that's confusion. At that point, that's rebellion. But I want you to watch this. The verse that we read, 1 John 1, 9, I want you to see what is obviously missing from that verse. It begins, if we confess our sins, and I want you to note there's no nuance. There's no categorizing. There's no except for, it's a blanket statement for blanket sin. The reality is no matter where I've been, what I've done, I can bring my failures to God. I can bring where I have fallen short of his design. And the promise of 1 John 1, 9 is something we can all take to the bank. He is faithful and just when we confess our sins, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Look in your notes. Confession for any kind of sin is met with the promise of forgiveness and the restorative cleansing that only God can provide. There is no sin outside those bounds. God says, bring it to me, confess it as what it is, and let me forgive you and clean you up, purify you. By the way, the basis for this ability for God to forgive started all the way back to where we were earlier today in Genesis 3. In that reality of the man blaming the woman, the woman blaming the serpent. God speaks to the serpent, but this is what he tells it. There is going to be the fruit of a, a, a man from this woman someday who's going to come and he, though he's gonna get bit in the heel, he's gonna crush your head. And this reality of God providing the means of atonement the means of forgiveness from what we just read in 1 John 1, 9, that was there all the way at the beginning at our initial failure. Man, I'm so grateful that that truth is there. You are not lost. You are not without hope. God loves you deeply and he invites you simply to come. Let me pray. Father God, we come before you today as we begin this brand new series about a sexual ethic, biblical sexuality, a holy sexuality. God, there are so many stories in this room, so many stories of those watching online, so many different experiences, so many different wonderings, so many different feelings. But I'm so grateful, God, that your truth, your word, it gives us the ability to to direct. It gives us the ability to navigate And like Ephesians 4 says, rather than be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and teaching, help us grow up into Christ who is the head. And God, help us in this series to keep asking you, God, reveal truth to me. Not my truth, not somebody else's truth. Reveal your truth to me so that I might know it and live accordingly. You may be here today and you would say, Todd, I have been living outside of God's design in every area of my life in that I've never responded to his invitation in the gospel. I've never responded to his invitation to be adopted into his family and become one of his own children. 
And I have great news for you today. That whether you're here, whether you're watching online, you can actually make that decision. You can begin where all of us began, A, admitting. Admitting that I'm a sinner who needs a savior. Admitting that I have lived off course. Back to Genesis 3, I'm a result of the fall. Fallen nature, fallen behaviors. Sinful nature, sinful behaviors. I need a savior. I need a rescuer. B, believe. Believe that Jesus is that rescuer. He who was promised in Genesis 3. He lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death. He was raised supernaturally on the third day. Believe that he is that savior who can rescue you. Would you see, choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I wanna put my confidence and my faith in what you've done for me at the cross. I wanna follow you the rest of my life, living according to your example. You can make that decision today. No classes to attend, no hoops to go through, but it begins at some point where we recognize, Jesus, I'm at the end of my rope, I need you. Father, this week, would these realities of the very first man and the very first woman, would they sink deep into our souls? Would they help us as we try to navigate a world who is absolutely out of control on these issues of sexuality? We love you and we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.